0: My guest is Mary Roach, whose latest book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. This is the seventh book. The others are Grunt, Stiff, Spook, Bonk, Gulp, and Packing for Mars. You couldn't come up with a one-word title for that one.
1: Oh, we tried. Oh, did we try, yeah.
0: On Fuzz, when I saw the name, I thought, oh, this is going to be about police. And then the book arrived, and... It's about animal crime, even tree crime, which is one chapter. So before we get into some of the details, when you finished the last book, which I believe was Grunt, you were searching around for a subject. How did you come to Fuzz? And I would guess when you started, you didn't know there was a book.
1: That's right. Yeah. I had no idea what I was going to work on next. I went through a period of protracted, flailing and groping and grasping. And I had a few false starts. And I don't recall how this came about, but I got interested in some of the work that's done up at the National Forensics Laboratory. And there's a woman up there who has established the world's largest hair library. So it's a library of animal hairs. And each animal may have like guard hair and fluff under the regular hair and face hair and like five different kinds of hair. So if some contraband comes into the States and is given to her, she can go to their library and she can identify what endangered species this might be by a hair. It's very CSI, you know, very um, crime scene forensics. And so I got interested in that and I thought, well, maybe we could build a book somehow around this work. And then I went in to talk to the director of the lab and he said, "Uh uh-uh, you cannot tag along with any investigators on any open cases legally. You cannot just flat out, nope, go home. (laughs) There's no book for you here. But I had wildlife crime rattling around in my head. I also wandered down the path of agricultural crime because I got excited about the fact that there is a crime that is classified as grand theft avocado. Right before the Super Bowl, when people are making lots of guacamole, enterprising criminals will go into fields and steal massive amounts of avocados. (laughs) And that is a felony crime, grand theft avocado. So I had this mishmash of, Animal hair and avocados being stolen, and it just wasn't working as a book. And I, and then I was just thinking about wildlife and crime, and I eventually turned it inside out and thought, well, what about animals as the perpetrators and people as the victims? And I'm using those terms loosely because obviously animals don't break the law. These are laws written for humans. Animals are just following their instincts and being animals going after food, looking for a place to build a nest and have their young. Whatever they're doing, sometimes they get in people's worlds, and that's when we have human-wildlife conflict, and that is what the book is about.
0: Mary Roach, there are two animals not in the book, but I'm sure you did some research on them, and both of them affect me personally. The first is that in June of 2020, a dog came into my life. I have gone over to Glen Park in San Francisco to hike with my dog, and there are all kinds of signs about coyotes, but coyotes don't really appear in your book.
1: That's correct. They don't, partly because around the time I started working on this, uh, well, shortly before, an entire book about the coyote situation in this country, called the book is called Coyote America, I think. So I felt like there's so much written already about coyotes. And because I have this very broad human wildlife conflict, there are 2000 species in 200 countries that kind of uh, uh, get into conflicts with humans. So I couldn't cover them all. The things that I chose for the book in the end were conflicts where I could go and be on the scene, which I like to do. And I didn't find a coyote project that kind of fit. So the coyotes didn't make the cut, I'm sorry. I had to draw the line somewhere. It's like having a wedding and you have the guest list and some people aren't going to make it and the coyotes didn't make it.
0: If the book hadn't existed previously, you might have had to go into that direction, I would assume.
1: Well, I could have. Uh, I was going to cover nutria, which are these large aquatic rodents that are showing up out in the Delta outside the Bay Area. I was going to cover them and I was going to cover Canada geese. At one point, I had a lot of false starts and I did some research and then I stepped back either because what I wanted to do, the narrative that I wanted to do, didn't work out or uh, there's various reasons. So it's sort of a mystery how it's not a mystery, that's the wrong word. It's a stop and start, random kind of process of what ends up in the book and what ends up. I have a lot of file folders in the back of the (laughs) drawer just dead ends. You know, there's a walrus folder in there. <laughs> <There's>,
0: <laughs> a walrus folder. There's
1: a walrus folder. I really- Wait a
0: second. How did a walrus climb into your book? Or <laughs> well, not climb in? Well,
1: was, this was back when I was thinking of, you know, wildlife as the victims of crimes. And there was this, uh, this was that lab up in Ashland, Oregon. They'd been doing this investigation on headless walruses were turning up on the shores up in the, uh, you know, way up. Uh, in the north part of Alaska, very close, you know, where it's close to Russia. They were trying to figure out, did the head come off as a part of natural decomposition or was the head removed on shore? So they were looking at how the head went severed from the body. They were doing all this walrus forensics. And I was like, oh my God, I want to write about this. They also in the course of that, I found out there is such a thing as a walrus dictionary. And this is a dictionary of Yupik, the native group up there, Yupik terms for walruses. And there are hundreds. There are, you know, the first arrival of the males in the spring, walrus. The, well, you know, there'll be a word for these, you know, th- because they hunt walrus uh, certain times of year. So they know these creatures inside and out. And they have this whole language of uh, vocabulary for talking about the walrus at various times of year and their various phases of their lives. But basically, I'm just like, walrus dictionary there's a walrus dictionary i have to write about that Uh, it didn't fit it just didn't fit the walrus dictionary i know it's on the cutting room floor it kills me well i'm happy that we got to talk about it now so thank you richard
0: (laughs) (laughs) one of my questions was with all of this in the book what's not in the book and i suspect that when we get into what's in the book we're going to go off into the area of what you couldn't quite figure out the other animal which has been a pain because it's recent. And this didn't happen, I guess it's related to climate change, but my entire front, what used to be a lawn, is now basically a gopher subway. Mm
1: -hmm. And gophers
0: don't appear in your book.
1: No, again, the gophers didn't make the cut. Uh, The Humane Society of the United States has a great resource on their website. It's called what to do about dot, dot, dot. And it's humane ways of dealing with whatever it is that's plaguing you, and I guarantee you, gophers are on that list. So I can I can at least do that for you, Richard. I can steer you to that resource. I mean, there's some nasty things people do. They put explosives and gas, and you know, because gophers live underground in these these tunnels, it's uh, sadly a simple matter to kind of gas them out because the gas stays in the tunnel. That's all I know. Now I wish I had, I mean, I wish I could have gone into a gopher burrow. I mean, apparently they have pretty elaborate, like, you know, prairie dog villages that have these elaborate rooms and, you know, it's kind of a whole estate under there. I'd love to know what's in it now. See, now you, now I, now I feel really sad that I don't have a gopher chat. Why didn't I write about gophers?
0: You wrote about so much else. Mary Roach, let's go into what's actually in the book rather than what's not in the book. Before the specifics, what was the most surprising, if you could remember, fact, something that you didn't know beside walrus dictionaries, (laughs) and it could be in the book or not, that kind of gobsmacked you the most?
1: That's an easy one. I had absolutely no idea. 500 people a year in India are killed by elephants. That is an enormous number of people to be killed by a big animal. Here in the United States, okay, bears is what people mostly think about for large animals killing people. We have between one and three deaths a year by bears in this country, between one and three. 500 people killed by elephants. Uh, That gobsmacked me right there, very much so.
0: What's funny is that my first question was talking about elephant drunkenness.
1: It's a problem. It's a problem. Elephants. Well, okay. Alcohol is involved in a lot of these deaths, more so because the people who die. uh, I think it was it thirty one or forty one percent. It's in the book. uh, Are drunk when they're killed. What happens typically? The scenario is, okay, you have a small village where the people grow things. They, They it's a subsistence farmer, so they've got plots of cauliflower and. Rice and various other things, and elephants come through as they do. Elephants kind of migrate across the top of India, and food gets scarce for them. They're big; they eat a lot, and they sometimes get stuck in certain areas because of the way, the way civilization has encroached. So they they go, oh, huh, this looks pretty tasty. They go in and they start eating, or or just trampling sometimes. And people see it, and if they don't know what they're doing, and if they're full of liquid courage, they're drunk. They're like, I. I'm going to take them on. You get it. Yeah, you know, they run out. It's often dark. There's a group of elephants because they travel in groups. They're social. They're family groups, uh, uh, sometimes quite a few of them. So you get some drunk person running out with, say, a torch or firecrackers and freaks the elephants out. They start running in various directions. The people are running around. The drunk guy is like, I can take them on. And the drunk guy often ends up dead. This is a bad idea, really bad idea. And the elephants, elephants themselves do like to drink. This again creates a hazardous scenario because there's this homebrew called Haria, H-A-A-R-I-A, home fermented from, I don't know what it's fermented from, something that they grow people in the region. So they've got these big tubs or casks. And to keep the elephants from getting at the booze, they'll drag it inside the house bad idea, (laughs) bad idea. Some of these houses are not very sturdily built and an elephant can smell the fermenting alcohol and can see no reason not to just knock this wall down and that happens. And then people wake up again, situation, it's dark. People are freaked out. The animal's freaked out. And as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt.
0: (laughs) Speaking of drunk animals, I would assume that when South Lake Tahoe was vacated due to the recent what is Caldor fire. That a lot of bears went into people's homes and found the liquor cabinet.
1: More than that, they found the refrigerator. I mean, I think they were more after going after food. And bears will do that even even in a non-fire scenario. But yes, you're right. They were breaking into homes, gas stations, whatever to find food. I spent time in Aspen in the outskirts of Aspen. People have built homes up in the mountains, which is black bear country, and the bears have figured out that there's often some tasty stuff inside those big boxes, so they break in. Sometimes when people are home, uh, often when people are not home, and these are a lot of these are vacation rentals, so they're left vacant, and uh, the bears take that opportunity to go and nose around. So yes, they do. They bear burglars. They go in and they ransack the house. Oddly, though, they they tend to not cause a lot of damage other than going into the refrigerator. And of course, the kitchen floor is strewn with broken honey jars and empty ice cream containers and things like that.
0: When were you in India?
1: Uh, I was in India, oh, let's see, that would be, that was a year for production, like two and a half years ago?
0: I mean, obviously, most of this was written before the pandemic. That's right. Gather. Yes, you know. yes. Well, when you went to India did you specifically have experiences with felonous monkeys?
1: I did. <laughs> I was mugged by a macaque. And that is partly my own fault because I went to a place that I knew to have lots of groups of macaques. And I knew that they sometimes grab things from people. And I was carrying, yes, I was, a bag of bananas. I was kind of asking for it. Because I was curious to see, you know, what was this like? How do they, did they work in a team, in a group? Are they very threatening? Oh, how, what is that? What's that like? I was mugged and I mean, it wasn't so much a mugging as a purse snatch, kind of like a purse snatch, but I, but they were, they appeared to be working in a team. One of them steps into the path and we're kind of looking at each other, eyeing each other, sizing each other up. And before that monkey made any kind of move, another one darts out, grabs the bag of bananas. So I wasn't sure if it was one of those, you know, how pickpockets work in teams. Sometimes one distracts you and the other grabs your wallet. Anyway, I don't know. They seem pretty slick, Richard.
0: (laughs) One thing that runs through the book in different animals and in different continents is how do you deal with a population that is running rampant through the community? And you discuss sterilization, And you discuss trying to kill them, trying to relocate. So let's take each of those separately. The whole sterilization thing, monkeys trying to sterilize monkeys.
1: Well, monkeys, uh, sure, there's been an effort in India to sometimes surgically sterilize and and, uh, sometimes to use contraception. Contraception is, you know, as a pill or a bait that's tough with a wild, free-ranging population because, first of all, you have to get the animal to eat the contraceptive material. And how do you know if you know one's eaten all of it and a bunch of other ones haven't had enough of it? Also, how do you keep other species from eating it, species that you don't want to control the population of? So there are, a lot, there are challenges, and you can do a, an immunovaccine, but that requires, like many vaccines, a booster. So that would mean you've got to somehow find the animals that you gave one shot to, know that you've got that, an animal that you you have to mark them so that you don't, you know, you know, which ones have had the original shot and which haven't, you'd have to somehow round them up. And that's very difficult. That tends to be something that's used in a geographically isolated area, like the wild horses of Assateague Island, which have become overpopulous. And so there's some efforts there to use a, a birth control vaccine And with deer, uh, some people have have been trying it with deer. It's tough to make that work, but there's ongoing efforts to do it. The public doesn't want sharpshooters just to go in and and kill them.
0: The other thing is relocation, which with birds, as you say, it just doesn't work.
1: Not with the albatross. (laughs) The albatross of Midway Island, which is a whole other story. The Navy, when they put a base there and they were concerned about planes hitting the birds, and causing you know, the planes to crash. So they tried pretty much everything they had in their arsenal and didn't work. And then they tried actually putting them on planes and flying them to neighboring islands. And the albatross has a very good built-in GPS homing system because they would come r- right back to where they were. So translocation of albatrosses, that's a tough one, but they tried it. They tried everything. You can translocate animals. There's a couple of reasons why it's not done that often, bears, you can translocate bears, and young bears in particular that are early on in their criminal, quote, career. Uh, They haven't really started habitually breaking in and, and relying on human foods. It's the parent bear that is doing that. Sometimes you can take the young bear and translocate it, and that will work. Bears are actually really good, like albatross, at finding their way back. I think the record is 152 miles a bear found its way back Uh, Including, I think, a six mile swim in one of these homeward journeys. So, bears are are quite good at finding their way back. The other problem is if you, as an agency, a wildlife agency, translocate a bear and it makes its way to a neighboring human community and it starts uh, getting into trouble and somebody's hurt, now you're liable as the agency. You put the bear there, so you're in part legally responsible if something happens. So, that is a bit of a, that puts the brakes on translocation to a certain extent, although it is a 75% of wildlife agencies will try that. They don't have a, you know, sometimes it works. It's, it's, it's it's worth, you know, worth trying. It's expensive, but it's worth trying just to give the animal another chance.
0: One other thing that runs through the book Fuzz is the invasive species issue, uh, which you encounter most specifically in New Zealand, but it happens everywhere.
1: It does. It does happen everywhere. New Zealand is a, an interesting case because they, as a culture, as a society, have decided that they want to be rid of these three invasive species that have decimated the numbers of several of their native fauna. They have a lot of flightless birds there, not just the kiwi. There's a bunch of different flightless birds because they evolved without predators. And so now at, when you bring in uh, stoats, stoats, possums, and rats are the ones that eat a lot of the chicks and eggs and even some of the adults. So the numbers are way down. And New Zealand has decided it doesn't want to eventually become an island of only stoats, rats, and possums. And so they're trying to eradicate massive numbers of these three invasive species. It's an interesting challenge and decision. It's called Predator Free 2050. 2050 is the year by which they hope to have this done.
0: Uh, Where were the rabbits?
1: Oh, well, the rabbits were the cause of all this. This is what, okay, when people settled in New Zealand from Europe, there were these things called acclimatization societies, and they would import animals, uh, sometimes deer to hunt. That happened in New Zealand as well. And woodland creatures, they brought in Rabbits. Well, rabbits Rabbits in New Zealand did what rabbits do. They multiplied very, very quickly. And suddenly there were just rabbits everywhere because they didn't have natural predators. And they were stripping the grazing lands of, of vegetation and uh, causing a lot of issues. So what did they do? They decided to ship in some animals that would kill the rabbits. They brought in stoats and ferrets. They shipped them in by boat and thought, okay, the ferrets will kill the rabbits. So the the stoats arrive, they look around, they're like, yeah, there's some rabbits, but you know what, those eggs sitting on the ground, those eggs look pretty tasty. And those little chicks, they look pretty good too, easy pickings. So the project didn't end as it was supposed to. The stoats fared very well. The rabbits are still there, plenty of rabbits still in New Zealand, far fewer of the birds, particularly the flightless birds, and a lot of reptile species also, Have gone extinct or are severely threatened. So, yeah.
0: How did you decide that India or New Zealand would be key locations for the books? How did both of them come up?
1: You know what the real answer is here? I was doing an event in New Zealand. So I thought, I'm going to be in New Zealand. Is there anything going on? So I started poking around. I got in touch with some people who are involved in uh, Predator Feet 2050s, different aspects of it. So I thought, okay. I'm going to be there. That would be interesting. The Vatican, what did, what's the other one you asked me?
0: I well I was going to ask you about the Vatican afterward, but I was the Vatican is its own story. Yeah, okay, India,
1: so. you said India. India, okay, India, I was really interested in because they have a different approach or uh, to resolving these conflicts or you know what do we do with these animals and you know if these animals are are killing people. And you know with elephants and leopards, that's a significant issue. Um, because of Hinduism, because there's gods that appear as animals, Ganesh, the elephant god, Hanuman, the monkey god, cows are sacred. There's this kind of reverence for animals and nature that is part of the culture. And so there's a lot of pushback. If you as a state government say, you know what, these, these macaques are a pain in the butt. Let's just declare them pests and kill them all. You, you will get a lot of pushback from people. They do not want monkeys harmed. They want the problem to go away, but they don't want you to harm the monkey. So it's very vexing for the people in charge of these matters in India. But, but anyway, they tend to, when there is a, a killing, they will uh, the government compensates the family. They pay them a lump sum of cash. So that's a different approach. You know, here, the animal's trapped and killed.
0: So India came up just when you were looking around and going animal crime.
1: I came upon the Wildlife Institute of India. Honestly, I I like to travel and I like to have narratives set in different cultures because I think it brings a different focus. It kind of makes the book a little more interesting. So I was poking around and then I, I came across the Wildlife Institute of India. I'm not sure how, just probably some kind of internet search. And then corresponded, I sent emails to a number of researchers whose projects I saw uh, on the website of the WII. And through a correspondence with one of the researchers, uh, he invited me to come along. Uh, he was going out into leopard and elephant country. So that sounded interesting. So the combination of an opportunity to just be with somebody on while they're doing their job in these communities was fascinating, but also you know, because of the slightly different approach to human animal conflict that you have in India.
0: Now we get to the Vatican. Had you seen something on TV about gulls and Pope Francis and decided, I'm going to Italy?
1: Let's see. How did the Vatican come about? You know what it was? I saw, and this this is a passing reference in the book, it wasn't the focus, but there was a news story about these gulls that attacked the Pope's peace dove. Once a year, the Pope appears on the balcony with some children. And it's like a children's day of peace. I don't know what the name of it is. It's in Italian or whatever. So, But anyway, the Pope <laughs> comes out with some children. And he's holding a dove, a white dove, of course, the symbol of peace. And he lets it go. And there's people down below watching. And this gull comes out of nowhere, like swoops down and t- with a t- beak and it just grabs the the dove the peace dove just you know feathers are flying so the exact opposite of peace <laughs> so <laughs> it was like a highly ironic scenario which kind of tickled me that that dove did survive but anyway one of the following years the pope released a helium balloon in the shape of a dove <laughs> so that i, I just love that story so i was poking around that got me interested in the Vatican also never been to Vatican city thought that might be interesting thought like an idiot thought maybe I could get an audience with the Pope and ask Pope Francis because you know, his guy is St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, This Pope is a man of the poor, a man of animals and the earth. He's written beautifully about protecting the earth. There's some encyclical that just is, is quite moving about how we need to take care of our earth. So I thought maybe, maybe he would talk to me about these issues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. I did not get an audience with the Pope, but I went anyway. I got as far as the Pontifical Academy for Life, which is full of ethicists and people who are used to sort of talking about ethical issues. And I kind of talked my way in there and and made a pest of myself with this very patient bioethicist uh, who I kept asking about, what gives us the right to kill a rat? (laughs) He's like, when is she leaving? (laughs) Who let her in here?
0: A couple of interesting areas, and I'm just curious how it came to you to put them in the book. Oh, well, one in particular, which is trees as murderers,
1: danger trees. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that chapter and the chapter that follows it, which is called the Terror Beans, which has to do with beans, lowly beans that have actually contain two of the most highly releg- regulated toxins in the world. Okay. Here's, here's kind of why those are in there. My title for this book used to be Animal Vegetable Criminal. We had an issue with Mark Bittman putting out a book in February called Animal Vegetable Junk, which is a history of food. A terrible title, right? This is Not it's nearly <laughs> as good as Animal Vegetable Criminal. Uh, anyway, so, but Mark, he, Mark Bittman, he's, his book came out. My publisher decided we shouldn't call this book Animal Vegetable Criminal, but I wrote it thinking that was the title. And at one point, my editor said, Mary, you need more vegetable matter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had the trees, uh, which I, I I wanted the trees in there anyway, because they're kind of interesting. But then I, I added, the beans got added because I had a request for more vegetable material. And by now it was COVID. I couldn't go anywhere. So that one was reported just by phone. So um, I think that's where reviewers will go well, one of her chapters really seems stupid. (laughs) What is that doing in a book about human-wildlife conflict? Okay, fair enough. My editor wanted some vegetable material.
0: And also, uh, there's quite a bit about deer, which particularly, now I live in the East Bay, and every October, you have to drive very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And you make a point that if you see a deer, do not swerve.
1: Yes. Yeah. Almost as many people or possibly more. I want to say anyway, as many people are killed by swerving, going off the road, hitting a tree, flipping over. So when you hit a deer, it is mostly the deer that is injured and not the driver. And the car as well, the car is injured. But what you don't, yeah, to swerve is to now put yourself uh, in harm's way. The scenario changes when it's a moose or an elk, a very tall or a camel. Very tall ungulate because the car is going to hit the legs. So the torso and the head are going to pinwheel over, bash onto the hood and through the windshield and onto your head. And a lot of paralysis, a lot of people's necks are broken by the the head or the antlers or even the torso landing on them. So in that case, you know, if you're driving through the desert in the Middle East and a camel steps in the road, definitely swerve. Go off into the sand, I'm telling you. Swerve, because there are papers on the types of injuries that occur when you smash into a camel. Injuries to you. Camel also doesn't do well.
0: How did you find out about the camels?
1: I did a Google Scholar search, camel vehicular strike, something like that, I think, probably. Or you know what also happens if you're reading about moose strikes somewhere in the references on the paper on you know vehicular moose collisions, there will be something about camels and elk, you know, in the references, probably.
0: So what happens is you're searching around, you find one thing, and then you see a footnote for something really weird. And you go, bingo.
1: That's my job. Yep. That's my nine to five right there. (laughs) Bingo, the bingo moment. I was like, ah, okay. Wow, moose. So yeah, then that was a rabbit hole. The moose vehicular. There's a moose crash test dummy that was developed in Sweden, because a lot of uh, cars on icy roads hitting tall animals. You got your elk, your moose. So there's uh, uh, Saab and Volvo have done a lot of research on how to reinforce the um, what is that called? What's the thing? The post that holds the roof on? <laughs> That's not a technical term. Strut. I don't know what it's called, but they're they're reinforced and they're a lot stronger. So if you do have a moose come crashing down on the roof of the car, you might survive.
0: You mentioned at the beginning of the interview walruses, and that was a kind of a dead end because there just wasn't enough there. Can you recall any other dead ends where you actually got a few paragraphs and you spent your entire book looking for a place and you couldn't find one?
1: Sure. Uh-huh, yeah. I, I got interested in eating nuisance animals as a solution, which isn't done very often here. There are folks who, when there's a roadkill of a moose or a deer, there are people who will come and take the animal for the venison, for the meat. In a very impoverished state in India, not that long ago, the government was trying to encourage people to embrace the cuisine of cooking rats. Here, we have had communities where people have been dealing with large numbers of Canada geese and people using the parks and the playing fields complain about all the goose poop. And some people have thought, hey, wouldn't it be we could take the geese and use them to feed the homeless, the unhoused? Well, no, because first of all, geese kind of graze. They pull up grass. They're almost closer to deer than birds. So they're pulling up and eating this grass that's on public lawns, which are treated with fertilizer, pesticides. So that's not clean meat. And it's also just, you know, we're going to take this kind of unwanted meat, even though, it, you, know, goose, you know, goose is perfectly good meat. It's, it's tasty. But the idea of, you know, here, take our cast off nuisance animals and eat those. It doesn't go well. It's been tried here and there. And there's a lot of pushback. The optics of that are not good.
0: You made a choice not to have insects.
1: I thought about including insects. I did because at a conference, I met an entomologist who is employed by, maybe it's Dow Chemical, I don't know, somebody who comes up with insecticides. And I thought, I started thinking about, you know, you're an entomologist. You've spent your career, your education, you know, learning about insects and presumably have a certain amount of respect and love for insects. I don't know. Love is possibly too strong a word, but an affinity, an affinity and now you need a job well where are the jobs the jobs are at the pesticide companies <laughs> so that's an interesting dynamic there is someone and i don't have his name in front of me because the folder is somewhere else but there is someone who wrote a really interesting quite lengthy chapter of a book about the ethics of pesticides and killing insects and you know what is their neurology i mean there is an assumption that they nervous system is too primitive to you know feel discomfort and pain. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I so I, I, haven't, I don't remember what's in the paper. I, I years ago did read it a couple of years ago. And that was a thought to include and that was a finalist. It was definitely a finalist, but it didn't make it in. And now I wish I had. You're killing me. What was it? The other coyotes and then you had another one that I did <laughs> The gophers. The gophers. Now i just <laughs> now I want to go back and do fuzz too. Gophers, insects, and coyotes.
0: Obviously, you're writing it in segments. You're working on the trees rather than the forest as a whole, and even the killer trees, which, since I mentioned it a couple of times, what are we talking about when we're talking about danger trees?
1: A danger tree is a tree that is either compromised, it's weakened, it's often very, very old and very, very large. So it's a tree... That is hundreds of years old, and it has started to rot from within. See, those big trees—they die very slowly. So you 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 have to watch them over a span of time, because if they fall, you know, high wind or an ice storm, if they come down, somebody could get killed. These are trees often in a place like um, I was up at McMillan Grove in BC, up in Canada where it's similar to our Muir Woods, where these beautiful old Douglas firs, these moss-covered beauties, and people drive through, and it's a tourist tourist attraction. People drive through, hike through, walk through. So a danger tree is one that is old enough and is starting. You can tell there's telltale signs of, maybe it's leaning, maybe it's got these things called conks, which are a sign that it's been rotting from the inside. Those are trees they have to watch. They hire somebody who's called a danger tree assessor, and for 15 years, he's been watching some of these trees just to see. You know, okay, we're gonna just keep watching it. Uh, but if it reaches a certain point where it seems to be kind of far gone, then they'll do kind of a mitigation where they'll take off the top, so it's more stable, less heavy, uh, not as likely to be swaying in the wind, so they can buy some time that way. But a danger tree may just be a tree with a really long branch on one side, kind of over a park bench. That <laughs> it's an old tree and. If that cracks off in the wind and falls on a bench, that's bad so you can move the bench you know you don't always have to do something with the tree but it's a tree that's threatening to cause bodily harm.
0: As I mentioned, you're writing chapters or trees and you're not necessarily looking at the forest but as I'm reading the book, I am seeing the forest and two things come up. the first is, something you must have noticed quite a bit, which is the effect of climate change on all of these different species and how it affects how humans operate with the species. That's the first. Yeah. So let's deal with that. I mean, what was your conclusion with regard to how a book like Fuzz gets written today or in 50 years?
1: One thing that I learned about was as the temperature, the average temperatures go up two degrees. For every two degrees, hibernation, black bear hibernation is shorter by a week. So, you know, because bears go into hibernation when it's cold and snow has covered the food supply and they can't find enough food. So nature has come up with this rather amazing way for them to just sleep through the lean months. With the um, temperatures going up, the bears are hibernating, for shorter periods, which means more time out on the land, getting into conflicts with people looking for food, etc. There was a projection in that paper uh, that by 2050, black bears in Colorado would be hibernating between 15 and 40 days fewer. So that's a lot more time out on the land. And, and, you know, people in bear country, uh, oh, they enjoy a, a reprieve when the bears are are hibernating because they're not no they're not getting into trouble they're not getting into the garbage they're not getting into people's cabins and that will change you also see migration patterns changing uh, we're starting to see Canada geese that partly has to do with they're just finding a lot of food enough food to support them those resident populations of Canada geese are growing they're not uh, migrating as many of them aren't migrating as used to so there's all there's all kinds of changes. A foot, I mean a- any time you change the temperature it affects the plant life, which in turn affects uh, the animals, I mean, there's uh, these penguins that I, I saw that are they're, they're trying to protect in New Zealand. The yellow-eyed penguin just a, a beautiful, colorful for a penguin. I mean, not just black and white, it's got these yellow kind of flash Gordon streaks and pink feet. It's just kind of a gorgeous penguin. And one of the things going on with that, these birds fish, they, they dive down and they catch fish. Well, the fish have been moving further out into deeper waters where because the temperatures have been shifting. So the because of the temperature shift, the fish are farther out and they are too deep for these penguins to dive. That's one reason that they're not doing as well. You know, the changing ocean temperature is all tied in.
0: The other issue, which runs through fuzz, unintended consequences. I mean, you run into that every single time. Somebody does something, and then something happens that nobody expects. Correct. Did you get any theories about the human race
1: from that? I think we are dangerously optimistic. Getting back to the invasive species and the decision to I know we can just fix it by bringing in this other animal, which will do what we want it to do. Well, animals are more complicated than that. And often it's done without a really thorough understanding of this animal's behavior. I mean, take the case of rats in the sugarcane fields in Hawaii. Someone brought in mongooses thinking, well, the mongooses or mongoose, what's the plural of a mongoose? Mongoose? Anyway, those guys, they'll eat the rats. Well, what you didn't think about is that the rats are nocturnal and the mongoose are diurnal, I think it was. So it did not solve the problem. And now you have all these (laughs) mongoose or mongooses running around. So I wanted a nice way to describe it, I think is overly optimistic. Just thinking, oh, it can't be that hard. Let's just try this. Yeah, It's like a little bit of caution is in order, people.
0: I keep thinking of Rumsfeld line about the yes. uh, the unknown unknowns. We yes. can't know. We yes. can't know.
1: It is those unknown unknowns that trip us up every time, every time. He was onto something there.
0: When you're writing a book like this, do you walk away from it happy that you've kind of been a forensic detective Because that's what you're doing. You're taking something and breaking it apart. Or do you feel kind of depressed because things are going wrong?
1: I usually walk away from a book feeling terror, terror that I haven't been able to learn enough to to do it justice. Because, you know, you spend a couple of years in a topic, and the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And I'm not an expert. It's not my lifetime career, human-wildlife conflict. So I'm always terrified that I'm, I know this isn't exactly what you were getting at, Richard, but this is the emotion that I walk away from a, a book with in general, is that it's so complicated and it's so hard to know how to present it accurately and fairly. I felt both, there were some things in this book that brought me hope. There were some that made me very sad and kind of hopeless. It's kind of a mixed bag, but that's because it is so complicated and because It's different in different parts of the the United States. It's different with different animals.
0: One thing you do, and it's very smart to do it, is you're very specific about where you get your information, particularly the more far out information. So you are constantly quoting people. And there's a bit of a bibliography in back as well. So you kind of cover yourself in that if someone says, hey, this is wrong, Mary, you can say, okay, but so-and-so, the expert, said this, that, or the other thing.
1: That's right, yes. Does
0: that kind of research, for you, say, in the past year and a half, knowing how to do that kind of research, does that help you make decisions with regard to yourself, your family, and COVID?
1: Yeah, I'm very familiar with how to look things up on PubMed and what's a good source and what's not. Uh, Because that's part of my nine to five job or nine to 11 or whatever. So, and I I enjoy it. I'm kind of the go-to person in my family. People are like, I don't know, should I get a third shot? I don't know, you know, or, oh, well, what do you think about mixing shots? I'm like, just a minute, let me just look it up and I'll, and I'll, but I also, I work with people. I work with Amy Maxman who writes for Nature and covers COVID. So I'll be like, Amy, (laughs) you got to help me here. I go to my sources. I do what I do in my job. So, yeah, I, I kind of run my private life the same way. Is there
0: a search engine better than Google?
1: Google Scholar is, is very good. It's a collection of millions, I, I would say, of peer-reviewed papers. I mean, you, you definitely want to look at, you know, what what is the influence factor of the journal? Is it a respectable journal? Was it a controlled experiment? How big was the subject population? Um, was it double blind? I mean, there, there are lots of ways to evaluate those papers. But Google Scholar, I find to be quite good. You can also, Sci-Hub is a great resource for, you can actually find the paper, not just the abstract. Sometimes those are very expensive. you will be charged 30 bucks just to look at a two-page paper. But sometimes Sci-Hub, S-C-I H-U-B will take you to the actual paper. So that's a great resource.
0: When you're looking at search engines that the rest of us use, And you're using one. Is it Google you're using? Is it Yahoo? Is it Bing? What are you using?
1: I'm using Google for the most part. I mean, sometimes I use Brave, which doesn't track you as much, which is similar to DuckDuckGo.
0: I don't even know those.
1: They're for people who don't want a record of their searches and don't want to be tracked and sold ads based on their searches. Uh, They'll use DuckDuckGo or Brave is another one. There, There are quite a few of them. I use Google Chrome. I don't use Bing. I don't know why. I just, I'm in the habit of using Google, but in particular for for papers, Google Scholar is a good one.
0: Mary Roach, now fuzzes come out. How many file folders do you have for your next book? And have you even thought about what it's going to be?
1: Oh, you bet. I've got probably 10 folders. They're very thin right now. <laughs> and they may end up, in the back of the file cabinet drawer, not being included in the book, but uh, I am getting rolling. I haven't even sold this book. I, my agent knows about it, but my editor does not, so uh, uh, early on, but I'm happy to have a project to step into because I have no hobbies. I, <laughs> this is the only thing I know how to do.
0: <laughs> you're kind of stuck, though, because at some point you're going to have to go somewhere, I would assume.
1: I am. I am vaccinated, so I- I will travel, have vaccine, will travel.
0: Should we get a third booster?
1: Yeah, exactly. I don't see the downside. Well, ethically, there's a downside in that we should be sharing with other countries that don't have their population vaccinated. So uh, that's your quandary there.
0: And final question. Where did the title fuzz from, and Who thought that one up?
1: I did. That was my original on the book proposal. Fuzz as in police, fuzz as in fuzzy animal. Kind of a little double play there. And it's in keeping with the one-word titles. But I was actually really excited about having nine syllables. Animal, vegetable, criminal. Is that not? Animal, vegetable, criminal. Yeah, nine syllables. You know, so we went back to my original one-word title. But just seemed like a combination of police work and animal fuzz. And it's got two Zs. I like that.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to an interview with Mary Roach whose latest book is Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.